Let's read together in the Epistle to the Romans, please, chapter 7. The Epistle to the Romans, chapter 7. Brother Clive and I have not talked at all about what we would speak about, and I am just very hesitant to take this up lest I should, tremble, lest I should tread on something that he wants to take up, but our thoughts are very similar this morning, and I hope the Holy Spirit will weave the thoughts together so that there's no conflict or overlap, but that really what we do is we develop truth as we go along in the conference. Romans chapter 7 then, and verse number 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Let me just pause on this verse for one moment. If you are genuinely born again, this verse is true of you. If this verse is not true of you, you are not saved. You need to come to the gospel meeting tonight because every true believer has an inward love for God and an inward love for His Word. And however much that is stunted, however much that is masked by other things, however much that is not evident maybe outwardly in our experience, every true child of God inwardly delights in the law of God. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. <clears throat> o wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I love it when the Bible answers its own questions, don't you? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the, fle with the flesh the law of sin. Chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Now chapter 13 will be my concluding reading. Romans chapter 13 and verse number 11, and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation, our ultimate deliverance, nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, <clears throat> not in strife 
and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the desires, the lusts thereof. That's all I want to read, and I trust God will bless this together with what you've already been hearing. If there's anybody here who is a believer and does not struggle with sin, put up your hand. No takers. That tells me that I'm not the odd man out because I struggle with sin. And it seems pretty evident from your reaction that it's not that you don't know how to raise your hand, but that you also struggle with sin on a daily basis. I hope to weave this in together with what Brother Barber has been saying because if there is an impediment to finishing well, it is sin in the life of the believer. Now last weekend or two weekends ago or three weekends ago in in Arlington, Washington, we spoke about the subject of the confession of sin. And in spite of all my promises to my friends in the sixth row, um, I'm not going to speak on that, although I'm going to circle back around on it and touch on a few points. But I, I want to look at uh, the bigger picture. Because if we do not face head-on the things that we struggle with in our lives, then there is really no sense that we're going to overcome them or have victory over them. I'm a pretty simple man. And I like to deal with really basic things. You know, a lot of us in our Christian life, we want to hit Grand Slam home runs. We want to throw the <coughs> winning pass in the, in the Super Bowl. But the fact of the matter is, is that in any endeavor, great accomplishments are based on the ability to do simple things well. Tom Brady does not win Super Bowl games by himself. He wins because there are people who block and tackle in front of him. Sorry for everybody who is from Philadelphia and not from Boston. I just came from Boston and uh, that's how she rolls. But the bottom line is this. There are some simple things in the Christian life that we need to work on. And one of them is this. God has called you and I to a life of holiness and likeness to His Son. And when sin intrudes, usefulness is lost, and joy is lost, and testimony is lost, and ultimately, I subscribe to what you've been hearing, rewards are lost, and future place in the kingdom is lost. And so we need to think about the problem of sin. I, I just have six or seven very simple to-dos for your list today. And I think these are things that all of us can, in one way or another, work on and do so very productively as we seek to honor God with our lives. The first thing I, I want to think about is that we need to acquaint ourselves more thoroughly with the holiness of God. 
You know, we live in a, a culture that does not respect authority particularly. And uh, everybody, you know, we just have this big flat social structure. Everybody is equal. Every fool that can sign on to Facebook has an equal voice in the, in the, in the public discourse. Um, and, 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 and actually the idea that there is a supreme transcendent being who speaks with authority and demands certain behavior, that's not something that is uh, even part of contemporary thinking in 21st century America. I want to just stop and tell you that what the world thinks about God and thinks about reality is of absolutely zero interest to the believer, none whatsoever. In our hands we have the revelation of a God that demands your allegiance and your obedience. A God who says, be ye holy, even as I am holy. There's no negotiation. There is no compromise. There is no watering down of the demand. God requires that you be holy because you and I have been saved by and serve and are eternally linked with a God who is transcendently holy. Be holy because I am holy. I think it was, in fact, I know it was Dr. Joseph Stoll. Some of you know his name. He was the president of Moody Bible Institute for a number of years. A very beloved Christian, I have never read anything by Joseph Stoll that I was disappointed with. He wrote about how we tend to view God. He, he said, you know, he said, I think that we have the idea that if God were to walk in somehow to, to, to this conference, that we would all line up to shake his hand, <laughs> that we would have him autograph our hymn book, <laughs> that we would you know, ask him if the Red Sox will ever win another game, you know, just trivial things. And, 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 his, and his response was this, that people in the Bible who came consciously into the presence of God in his glory found nothing trivial about it. They, they fell on their faces. Some of them didn't even know whether they were dead or alive. So great was the awesomeness of this holy God that they stood before. I think it would be a good thing today. A lot of ministry is just focused on me, 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 me. What can I get? What can I do? How can I serve? How will I be recognized? And I think there is a component of ministry that needs to focus on that, but there's a great component of ministry that needs to focus on God, who He is what he's like, what he requires. Let me just say this. You and I serve a holy God who absolutely hates sin. You know, I don't know if you've seen the bumper sticker, you know, you know, hatred is not a family value or something like that. Have you seen that? You know, I don't know whether the people who drive those cars understand what's behind the bumper sticker, but I want to tell you something. It is an attack on God's ability to hate things that are unlike him. God is a God who hates. He actually hates with equal passion as his love is passionate toward us. Did you know that? God, God hates iniquity. God hates sin. God abhors anything that is deviant from his character. 
so that when God says, no other gods, no idols, no misuse of my name, no disruption of my rest, no disrespect of parents, no murder, no sexual sin, no stealing, no lying, no wrong desires, he means exactly what he says. And so in this morning session, let us lift our eyes heavenward. Because there's no point in trying to live the Christian life in reference to other Christians. That's not going to work. There's no point in trying to live the Christian life with some philosophy that I've constructed that somehow satisfies me. There's only one way to live a holy life. It is to live it moment by moment in the presence of a God who is unflinchingly holy. Number two. If I am going to get any victory over sin, it is going to require that I call it by its proper name. Now let me just help you with what I have in mind here. Because there's one thing that the devil knows that most Christians don't. I'm going to tell you what it is. That whoever controls the language controls the thinking and the philosophy of people who use it. Let me give you some examples. Fornication and adultery and homosexuality and all the other sexual sins are rarely referred to by their biblical or their God-given or their proper names. You know what it's called? It's uh, fooling around. Who doesn't want to fool around, right? It's uh, an alternative lifestyle. It's, uh, it's just what's acceptable. It's what everybody does. And in the diminution of the language, the violence of the act against the holiness of God is now reduced. And suddenly, fooling around, which sounds innocuous, falls short of what Joseph said in Genesis 39, that this is great wickedness and sin against God. Now, I want to talk to my young friends who are here particularly today, because sin is talked about and treated incredibly lightly today. You should not be watching comics on YouTube or on the internet, because almost without exception, they describe sin in language that falls short of calling it sin. It's just a joke. It's something to be laughed at. And the problem is that if you laugh at what you see on TV or what you see on your iPhone or what you see on your computer screen, pretty soon you're going to be participating in it. And by the way, Romans chapter 1 says that it's not only those who do something, it's those who approve of it, those who laugh at it, that are actually guilty before God. Now this cuts awful close to home to me because I'm a good-natured person. And I like jokes. And I like humor. I like clean humor. But the bottom line is this. Our culture is moving filth through comedy into mainstream acceptance. And so let me ask you today to guard what you watch. Sin is not sickness. Sin is not weakness. Sin is not a mistake. 
Sin is rebellion against the holy God. You say, this sounds like a gospel meeting. I, that's okay with me. Because the fact of the matter is, a lot of things we learned before we were saved, we forgot as soon as we got saved. And that's a tragedy. And one of them is the heinousness of sin. So, in our families, when we're talking to our children, let's use biblical terms. Let us identify sin as God sees it and point out the great wickedness of what is so accepted in the culture around us. The third thing, and I'm revisiting Arlington, forgive me for a minute, is that we require regular, daily confession of sin. I, I was laughing a little bit out there because when I was first saved, I had the idea that uh, the way that people confess sin is, number one is you waited until you committed some horrible and heinous crime, and then you went to God at the end of the day or the end of the week, and you gave God a full Broadway production, lots of tears and wailing, and, and, and somehow you worked yourself into some uh, great condition, and you prostrated yourself before God, and, uh, you know, as the lowly worm... Uh, and uh, I don't know where I got that idea, and it's totally wrong. When I am conscious of sin in my life, at that moment, I am to go into the presence of God and confess that sin. It does not require flowery language. It does not require great speeches. I think the prodigal son, would you agree with this? I think the prodigal son is a great model. I have sinned. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Anybody here can't carry through with that? I have sinned. It is a simple acknowledgement that I have fallen short of the standard that God requires. I have sinned. And I think along with that, there is the request always that the Lord would help us not to continue sinning. I take that from the Lord's Prayer, actually. Did you know that? When I was a boy, I listened to my grandparents every morning at 8 o'clock, having eaten their oatmeal and two prunes exactly. They turned on the radio and listened to a man who recited the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, which art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But you know what comes next? And lead us not into temptation. You want that in plain English? Lord, help us not to sin. Help us not to fail you. Help us not to fall short of the glory of God. Help us not to fall short of the perfect example of your own Son. And so, may the Lord help us that when we are conscious of sin, that it will be confessed in his sight. Let me make one little point that I made out west, and I want to emphasize this just for a minute. I don't want to pass this over, and it won't hurt you to hear it twice. All great spiritual disasters are the result of small, unconfessed sin. Let me do that again, not because I think you're slow or hard of hearing but simply because its importance is so great, we cannot minimize it. All great spiritual disasters 
every single one of them is the result of small, unconfessed sin. Look at the life of David. It's just a wonderful illustration that when he should have been where kings ought to be at the head of his army, he is slothfully remaining in Jerusalem. He allows his eyes to go to places that his eyes should not go and his thoughts to go to a place where they should not be. And ultimately, as a result of that, there is sexual sin, there is murder, there is every sort of wickedness. Oh, what a costly thing that was for David. What a costly thing. Can I tell you today that sin is a costly thing? Sin promises everything and delivers absolutely nothing. And David learned, read Psalm 51, to his great regret that little unconfessed sins led to life-changing disaster. That's why Mr. Archie Stewart, a man that I was saved through, used to pray in public, Lord, deliver me from dying, a wicked old man. And I didn't know what that meant when I was 15, but I'm not 15 anymore. And I have a real good idea of what that means. And I'm scared to death. Lord, deliver me from that. Lord, deliver you from that and you from that, and you from that, and all of us from that. We need to confess sin when it is small so that sin will not gain the mastery in our life. The fourth thing I want to talk about is what we read in Romans chapter 13, <clears throat> and it is simply this, make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Let me try and put this in English as simply as I know how, and it is simply, the, it, is, it just goes like this. There are places that it is easy to sin. Stay away. You know, you, you cannot hang around with people who are sinning and expect that you're not going to be splashed by it. I, I, I really, the number of illustrations that come to mind are more than what I have time to even talk about here today, but you need to look at your own life. I think you used the word analyze. I, I, I like that, or the word evaluate. We need to evaluate our life and, and see where our weak points are. Now, you know, I know not everybody is a real introspective person, and a lot of times we're so busy and there's so much noise going on that it's hard to pause and, 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 and really think in the presence of God. But, but I would invite you to do this. Stop and say, where is it? And when is it? And who am I with when I find it easiest to sin? You know, the Christian life is going to require some hard decisions. It may be that places that you love to go are places that you can't go if you're going to overcome sin. It may be that circumstances that you have been heretofore comfortable with are going to have to be eschewed if you are going to really live for a holy God and be holy like Him. It may even be that there are people. Now, I may get fired for this, but, um, but it's worth it. 
there may even be other Christians that you cannot be around because their low spiritual standards will bring sin into your life. I, I, this statement, make no provision. Give no opportunity. You know, when I go home, and I live in a very safe community, but you know, I could make a big show in front of my neighbors of locking the front door. And I can lock the door and turn the bolt and lean a chair up against the doorknob and set the alarm. But if I leave the screen door on the deck wide open, you know, I've just made a mockery of the whole thing. And you and I can put on a great big front in front of other believers and be the whitest of the white shirters and your Bible bag bigger than everybody else, you know. And you can take all sorts of public care. But in your personal life, allow vulnerabilities where it is easy to sin. I'm going to ask you to be hard on yourself. I'm going to ask me to be hard on myself. Because there's some things I cannot legitimately do. I was recently at a conference. It's about a year ago. And um, it was dark outside. It was after the gospel meeting. And there was a sing at this individual's home. And somehow in the rush of everyone leaving for the sing, there was a young sister in her teens that was left behind. One of the brethren whom I've known for many, many years, he's a beloved friend of mine, he came rushing over and he said, Dan, uh, uh, would you take her over to the sing? You know, my first reaction is I'm by myself. The car is empty. I'm going to the sing. Where's the problem? I'll tell you where the problem was. The problem is, is that my wife was back in Michigan. You say, Dan, you're being ridiculous. Really? I do not wish to end my life in an immoral way. And neither that sister nor I had any intention of immorality, but it was something that could not happen. I'll just say this in defense of the brother who asked it. Halfway through the sentence, the blood ran out of his face. And he quickly followed it by, no, we're going to find some other way. You say, boy, you're really, you're, you're really tight, man. You're, you're really worried. Yes, I am. I'm worried about finishing well. I'm, winning, I, I'm concerned about honoring my wife who was not with me. I'm interested in my grandchildren who look to me at this stage in life at least as their hero. I'm interested in God's people whom I try to serve and the community that I live in where people look to me as a spiritual leader. And all of that could be lost in a single failure to avoid every possibility of sin. Now my time is flying here. Let me talk about number five. We need to be careful, and, and I think these two points go together, that we do not compartmentalize our life. What's that mean? 
You know, I think it's, it, 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 is a, it is a function of human psychology that we tend to put our life in different boxes. So I have my work box. And I dress a certain way there. I talk a certain way there. I begin every sentence with so there. That's a bad joke. Don't start your sentences with so. It doesn't belong at the beginning of sentences. But I have my work life. So you get it, right? Oh, I just did it. Then I have my home life. And, you know, I have my wife, my children, my grandchildren. And, uh, you know, that's, that's my home life. I have my community life. That's my neighbors and all those folks. I have my assembly life. Boy, I'm really something there. You should see me. I'm, I'm all that, you know? And then I have a life that nobody sees. It's the life of my mind. It's the life that no one has any insight. Did I really say that sentence? Do you know why that's all wrong? Because there's somebody who sees every single box. That may not even be me. I may not even be that self-conscious. It's not my boss. It's not my wife. It's not the elders. It's not my neighbors. It's God. Let me just tell you, it's a fool's paradise to divide your life. One of the great and glowing glories of the Lord Jesus is that he was the same. And I'm not thinking now of time, yesterday, today, and forever. He was the same wherever you found him. Brothers and sisters, if you want to make sin easy, start blocking off parts of your life, living different ways. I remember recently, this is just anecdotal, but it makes me laugh, and uh, I, 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 was, I was at a Barnes & Noble bookstore. That is my alternative home. Uh, clean restrooms, good coffee, lots of books, and comfortable chairs. What, what's not to like? And uh, I was in there late one evening, and um, I, I, was, uh, I was just walking through the aisles, getting ready to come out of the store, when I turned a corner, and suddenly I was confronted by one of the sisters in our assembly. I didn't expect it. She doesn't even live in that town. But suddenly, I face to face with this sister. She's a lovely lady, and, um, but I saw something. Her eye went from me, hi, how are you, to what I was holding in my hand as I came away from the magazine section of that store. I was glad that it was a fishing magazine and not something else. And it was a wonderful reminder that the Dan that you see at the hall and on the platform needs to be the Dan at home with his wife and children. And the Dan that you meet at Barnes & Noble when Dan doesn't expect to meet you. And even the Dan that lives in here. Before God, one seamless holy life. So we're going to come right down to business here. If you have a part of your life that has lived in the dark, bring it into the light. If there is a part of your life that you cannot confidently expose to your wife, your children, to your brethren, and to God, you need to confess that. And you need to rip the roof off. And let the light of God's holiness govern equally every part of your life. Number six, we need to be sure 
that our thoughts are under control. You know, people tell me, it doesn't matter what I think about as long as I don't do it. So that I can indulge in all sorts of sinful thoughts and ideas and concepts and philosophies, but all God cares about is just what I do. Excuse me just for a minute. I've been speaking to young people for decades, and there's something I love to say to them, merely be, mostly because I like to shock them. God, God doesn't care what you do. Am I fired yet, David? Okay. God doesn't care what you do. You know why? God cares what you are. And what you do flows as a logical consequence from what you, in your heart of hearts, really are. Now, it's time to circle back. God does care what you do. But for the purpose of my argument, what you do is not the issue. It's what you are. We had a president in the United States. I'll say his name, Bill Clinton. And when caught acting immorally, he said, people don't care, you know, what I do as long as the economy is good. That's rubbish. God cares about what you do because it is a reflection of who you are. And who you are is most closely defined by what you think about, what you enjoy in your own headsets. And I want to suggest that what you think about is what you ultimately are going to do. And you cannot harbor sinful, immoral, wicked, lustful, uh, covetous thoughts without that ultimately working its way out into your behavior. You know, maybe you're going to say, well, the Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Pretty simple, isn't it? Your thought life defines who you really in your deep, deepest self are. Now, people say to me, but Brother Dan, I have thoughts that come into my mind, and, and, and they come unbidden. Does any, anybody here have that? I, I do. I, I, I see a billboard, and it creates thoughts that I did not ask for or desire. Let's not kid or let's not fool around here this morning. Let's just talk reality. There's things you see. There's things you hear. There's things you read. There's experiences that you enter into. And there are thoughts that come into your mind. And they are not the thoughts that you chose. And they are not the thoughts that you invited in. But there they are. By the way, I, I never confess those thoughts to the Lord. Now let me be very careful here. I wasn't the origin of those thoughts. I am not responsible for them entering my mind. I'm going to tell you what I'm responsible for. I am responsible for how long they stay there. You know, there's an old saying, and I take this very personally, it doesn't matter if birds land on your head, it matters if they build a nest in your hair. And um, I obviously am excluded from the truth of that almost universal statement, but the fact of the matter is, it's not the thought that matters. It's the savoring of the thought. It is the repetition of the thought. It is the enjoyment of the thought. There's where sin comes in. That, that, and that is why Philippians chapter 4 says, think on these things. You see, God wants us, when thoughts come into our mind, He wants our mind turned to holy and beautiful things. You know, even secular psychiatrists practice what is called displacement therapy. And it is simply this. When people focus on something that is wrong, 
the sooner that it is displaced with something that is right, the better their mental health is going to be. Let me tell you that that is exactly true in the spiritual world. When evil thoughts are allowed to linger in the mind, hmm, those evil thoughts begin to form the character of your soul. And so, dear brother, dear sister, this is a struggle that I have. I have a vivid imagination. I have all sorts of thoughts. But when thoughts that are unworthy of Christ enter in, they are to be replaced with thoughts of Christ and of His Word. And not just that, by the way. I think Philippians 4 says that Christian music could fill that spot. Don't you think so? Things that are lovely and things that are pure. I don't, I don't necessarily think it has to be that you meditate on the you know, songs, uh, Psalms of Ascent or something. It isn't the idea. But when unworthy sinful thoughts come in, they are to be immediately, upon recognition, replaced with things that are worthy of God's honor. The last thing, and I have one minute, and I'm just going to touch on this and go, and that is this. That I need to yield myself completely to the God who saved me. You know, apart from that, everything else that I've said is not really going to work. Because God does not claim part of me. He wants all of me. My, my wife one time, some of you have heard me say this, told me that she wanted to rewrite one of the hymns. That's dangerous business among the brethren. But I said to her, I said, uh, how, do you, how do you want to rewrite it? She said, well, I think it would be more, more truthful if, if we sang, uh, take my life and let it be some for God and some for me. I said, amen, I'd sing that really heartily. I, I, I think that's the way I live most of my life. That's not what God wants. God doesn't want to sit in the front seat of your life. He wants to grab the steering wheel and run things. And the problem is, most of us, if we were really going to be honest, we like having Him there. We like having Him around. But yielding everything to Him scares us to death. Anybody here know what I'm talking about? Well, thanks for some honesty. Somebody nodded their head. I appreciate it. It is a life that is totally laid on the altar for God that actually has victory over sin. You and I are never going to come to a place of sinlessness in this life. That awaits a future day when you and I are fully conformed to the image of Christ. But may God help us in this little while that we have left until the day of reward and the day of review that we've been thinking about. May God help us in this great struggle against sin to take practical steps, to open our lives to the eye of a holy God and seek to lead and live holy lives for Him. The Lord bless you. Let's pray for each other. Pray. Would you do that? Would you, do, would you pray for Dan? And would you pray for Clyde? Would you pray for this, Dan, too? And pray for your parents. Are you all praying for your parents? Honor your father and mother. Pray that your parents won't sin. Pray for the elders in your assembly. Pray for the girl that's sitting next to you or the boy. Pray for your circle of friends. Godliness will reach its happiest height when sin is put aside and holiness Holiness to the Lord is seen.
in our lives.